Hello again, and welcome back to Firing on Film and part two of our historically set top ten. Let's get right back into the chat. Right, so we'll, we'll do our fives then, because Joe must be on the way soon. I know <laughs> he's going to rock up, as we say, our number one. That's it, isn't it? And he's just going to go, by number five is <laughs> apparently Andre Rublev, because he's crossed it out, so I'm assuming it's going to pop up somewhere else. Um, so, uh, Holly, go on then. Do you want to do your number five? Sure. Uh, my number five is Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I I was uh, toying with where this should go on the list and it lived at number one for a while and then it lived at number three and it slowly moved down. I think it's probably the film on my list that I admire the most, but if I'm being honest, don't enjoy the most, which is why it slipped down the list a little bit. So it was uh, released in 2006, but set in 1944. It's a Guillermo del Toro film about... Uh, the Spanish Civil War and the um, uh, rebels living in the in the forest um, and uh, a murderous, awful um, army officer um, who is um, torturing uh, the lead character. Um, I I love this film for the aesthetics more than anything else. Um, the story's beautiful, the story is heartbreaking. Um, the setting is beautifully realized, but it's the monsters that I love. I think I think it was the first Guillermo del Toro film that I saw. And after it, I had to go and find all of the others. Um, I think Doug Jones does his very best work in this film. The, the um, monster with the eyes in his hands haunted my dreams for weeks and weeks and weeks not in a nightmares kind of way but in a that image is so powerful and scary and strange um, and the noises that the monster makes um, the fawn exactly the same that really creepy eeriness of is this a good guy or a bad guy at any moment he could he could lash out and I would believe it um, I think Guillermo del Toro does that so well that the, the aesthetics telling you that there's something you can't relax there's something uncomfortable going on there's something creepy you need to be on guard at all times um i should have a lot more to say about this film um i i i really really love it, it it's gorgeous and you haven't seen it yeah i was i was going to mention was this i'm sure it was in your world cinema it was, was it? it was in someone else's list. Okay. I didn't put it on my world cinema list. Because I had probably should have been Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Either as an honorable mention or maybe as my number five. And again, that's another film that, for whatever reason, didn't consider for today, but would have probably been an honorable mention. Might not have made my top ten. Uh, but yeah, no pans. I still need to get through. Um, Lucy Hadfield. Um, keeps telling me that I need to watch it you know she's she loves it she's big on her obviously Spanish films anyway um but she's yeah she's keeps reminding me that I need to get around and watch it at some point um okay my number eight not my number eight what I've just seen the number eight and I've just yeah (laughs) my number five thank you um was on Sam's honorable mentions um and it is set in 1980 um and it's no country for old men so this is the 2007, we're referring to it as a neo-Western because this idea of a contemporary Western, has it changed from what it was previously? Arguably, yes, it's not, you know, kind of cowboy hats and things like that anymore. It's mainly in things like Nevada or West Texas or Arizona and things like that. 
Um, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, based on Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel of the same name, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin. If we're talking performances, this Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh would be up there with the best. Um, it follows a Texas welder, played by uh, Josh Brolin, and Vietnam War veteran in the desert landscape of 1980 West Texas. We revisit themes of like fate and consequence and circumstance that come up in previous Coen Brothers films, such as Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Fargo, things like that. So while out hunting, Llewellyn Moss finds a grisly aftermath of a drug deal. Though he knows better, he can't resist the cash that is left behind and takes it with him. The hunter becomes the hunted when a merciless killer played by uh, Javier Bedam, Anton Chigurh, picks up his trail. Um, also looking for Moss is Sheriff Bell, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones, an aging lawman who reflects on the changing world and a dark secret of his own as he tries to find and protect Moss. This is the kind of, I'm assuming triumvirate might be a word, if I'm talking about a triple threat, would be you've got um, Josh Brolin as the kind of, I'm going to set out on myself and find, I found this cash. What am I going to do with it? I know it's going to make a difference to my life. So I'm going to try and everything I can to run away with it and protect it. Then you've got the sort of slow, but not as physically intimidating, but definitely still intimidating Terminator style Anton Chigurh of he's carrying around a bleeding gas tank and he's going to, you know, just shoot it in the middle of your head and that's going to be it. Um, some of the creepiest scenery and scenes coming from Anton Chigurh, um, even like really towards the beginning were, I think he has been arrested and he chokes out the police officer using the handcuffs. And it's just, it's the combination of the cinematography and the diegetic squeaking sound of his shoes kicking against the floor. And you just think that is just struggle personified, you know, sort of as, as visual as you can get it. Um, and then Tommy Lee Jones doing that thing that Tommy Lee Jones does really well, where he is maximum grizzle, um, which is how someone also referred to Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino, where he just kind of sits there and grumbles and grizzles and is annoyed with everything. And the film ends on Tommy Lee Jones basically reflecting on what happens. But you get to a point where the big payoff is Tommy Lee Jones' character having this almost soliloquy, I suppose, but actually it's it's almost bringing the peace to the idea of how intense this chase has been between Morris, between Chigot and the kind of full circle that we end up happening. This, I think, I don't think it was the first Coen Brothers film I watched because I think I'd seen Big Lebowski before this, but it was definitely the time where, for whatever reason, they were all of a sudden on my radar and I think it was mainly due to the Oscar hype and the buzz that was surrounding it. There was a big conversation at the time that I was having with my old film studies teacher, Nick, about do you have comedic coins or do you have dramatic coins? And his simple response was, why don't you have both? Um, no Country for Old Men is definitely not a comedic film, but it's one of those films that it, it proves that in terms of I mean, I'm kind of picking a flaw in my own sensibilities here. If we're looking at auteur and auteuristic style, they're the kind of antithesis of auteur because on the one hand, you can be comedic and you can make everybody laugh out loud with things like Big Lebowski with Fargo, Burn After Reading, Hail Caesar, things like that. But then 
you bring us right back down to the dramatic with things like No Country for Old Men, with the melodrama of things like A Serious Man. You know, you've then throwing in a musical for Inside Lewin Davis. Why not? Just go and do a horror film next. You may as well, if you're just going to go and do everything. Um, but, but, for- but I disagree, though. They are all very Cohen. They're all okay, different yeah. genres, but you can tell a Cohen film when you mm. start watching one. Definitely. So then I think though we're looking at thematic sensibilities and things like that. But in terms of genre, they'll just do whatever they want with it. Sack that off. It's a Cohen brother. I think actually I mentioned this when we were talking musicals within Sadler and Davis, is that they're essentially a genre unto their own now in that it is just a Coen Brothers film. Like, what, what's that film about? Oh, it's a Coen Brothers film. All oh, right, that makes sense then. I know that I know what I'm going to expect when I walk into this one then. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we're still waiting for this one. He's going to appear at some point. I mean, he better do because I don't have his five to one. So <laughs> Well, he can, he can do it whenever he arrives. Yeah, whenever he decides to pop in. So I'm going to go with my number four. Uh, my number four is the most recent one that's on my list. Uh, this is from 2019, and this is Joker, which is set in 1981. Um, Joker, again, was a really weird one, where they announced really early on that it was going to be Joaquin Phoenix playing Joker. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., not Robert Downey Jr., Robert De Niro, apologies, was going to be in it. And it had this weird kind of king of comedy aesthetic, sort of late 70s, early 80s, Martin Scorsese aesthetic. And how were they going to fit that in? Where did it fit in with Batman lore? Was it going to be one of those films that actually you could take out all the Batman references and it would just be something else? And I think, admittedly, you probably could do that, but I think it's a better film for having them in. Um, So this is, as I've kind of already alluded to, the psychological thriller film directed by Todd Phillips, who I think even surprised people because he's more known for the Hangover trilogy and old school and things like that. And he's gone off and done this really dark film. So it's based on, it just, as simply as it puts, it just says it's based on DC Comics characters. Again, I'm not far up on my DC Comics reading and things like that. And I don't know if there's much truth in the representation of the character that we see in the film and does it link back to the comics much. Um, But this is Joaquin Phoenix as Joker and apparently it is an alternative origin story. So it's set in 1981. It follows Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a failed clown and stand-up comedian whose descent into insanity and nihilism inspires a violent countercultural revolution against the wealthy in a decaying Gotham City. Forever alone in the crowd, failed comedian Arthur Fleck seeks connection as he walks through Gotham City. He wears two masks. He has the one that he paints for his day job as a clown and the one that he uses um, to project a futile attempt like he's part of the world around him. Um, he begins his slow descent into a criminal mastermind known as the Joker. And I think for me, it had the kind of dark elements to it. We were really intrigued to see. Very similar to Christian Bale in The Machinist, where it's a very physical performance. And there are so many different sort of irks and moves that he makes with his body that unnerve us. And a lot of the kind of uncomfortability and the psychological uncomfortableness, I suppose, that we get is through his body, is through his mannerisms, is through his body language, his facial expressions, things like that. You're watching the descent of a man. And ultimately, when you remind yourself that the film's called Joker and he's supposed to be underpinned as this kind of big archetype villain that we're used to from these Batman comic books, we know the way that he's going to end up. 
or we think we know that the way he's going to end up and how the film is going to end and, you know, uh, kind of wrap everything up together. A lot of the treatment that he gets in the film, or actually most of the treatment that he gets in the film, is really underhanded. And there is a lot of pathos there. There's a lot of empathy coming from the audience um, from that. Um, but I loved it. And I think by the time we got to the end of the film, I mean, I tweeted that I would have sat there for many more hours just to see the rise of Joker, the more inclusion of the Batman law, more inclusion of the Gotham law. There's very specific bits where it mentions people like Bruce Wayne, Thomas Wayne, things like that. And you think the film's going to go a certain way. There's a whole thing to do with whether or not our, um, Arthur and Bruce Wayne are actually brothers, um, although there's a very significant age gap between the two. But by the time he actually dons the clown makeup and asks to be called Joker, and there's the whole thing with the Mary Franklin show at the end, and it just it builds up, it builds up. It, I don't think I've ever, unless I can like either be corrected or think about it properly, I don't think I've ever had a film that ends on such a kind of crescendo almost of the it's not that we've got a big final moment that's just ended and giving you a payoff it's building it's building it's building it's building it's building right to the point where it's at a peak and then it ends and i think that's the point where i'm almost like well i could just sit here and watch another one now because i've had the two hour build-up of this is who joker is now give me another two hours of this is now what he's going to go off and go and do um, I'm interested to see where they go with it because apparently they are going to do a sequel. I don't think it could tie into Robert Pattinson's Batman because I feel like he looks way too young for that. And Joker at this point, if we're talking 1918, he's about 40. Talking 60, 70-year-old Joker, I don't think that's going to happen. But again, this was one that, you know, is is almost, it's, it's definitely trying to replicate an aesthetic and it's trying to replicate that aesthetic from Martin Scorsese films, as I mentioned. And the atmosphere of things like Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, and I think it does that well. Um, but that is my number four. Uh, so, Holly, go on. We, we've talked a bit about how we we maybe don't like origin stories mm. as much when it's uh, a comic book origin story. Um, I think Joker really sidesteps most of the traps that you yes. have in an origin story and does it really well. Yeah, because I think at this point, we're used to Spider-Man's origin story, and I think the reason why I like Spider-Man Homecoming so much, and I think it's the best one, is because it, it's, like, as you kind of mentioned there, it sidesteps it. Um, Batman were crossing the boundary, and I think, because there's not too much of it in the Nolan ones. They've kind of gone the different way, but the fact that we've seen the whole... We've just been to the theatre. My parents get shot in an alleyway in both Batman versus Superman and kind of in Joker, we're getting to a point of how are th- how was the Batman going to do it with Robert Pattinson? How are we going to see something a little bit different? Um, all right, go on then, Holly, your number four. So excited about my number four because I've definitely never spoken about it before. I feel like it's the one that I'm waiting for. Podcasts. Oh, right. I'm I'm going on mute for a bit. You do your thing. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about it a lot because I have already got out of my tree and talked about it in the foreign films podcast. I talked about it in the musicals podcast. If I thought about it, I'd have snuck it into the comedies podcast. I should have found out whether a Disney subsidiary owns the um, distribution rights to Lagan, and then I could have talked about it in the Disney podcast as well. Um, I'd have pretended it was a Christmas film to talk about it in the Christmas podcast had I been there. 
um, because it's just a wonderful film that I needs mean, to be talked I, about every day. Ollie had Die Hard, so I would give you a gun. I mean, my favourite Christmas film is um, uh, uh, The Great Escape, which nearly made uh, my this. historical films list. Um, but yeah, you, you, can, you can debate <laughs> that one as much as you like. Okay. Um, so Lagan came out in 2001, but it's set in the 1890s during the Raj in um, India. Um, it's uh, directed by amazing Bollywood director Ashutosh um, Gowarika. Um, it has like a dream Bollywood cast led by Amir Khan. Um, we are uh, thrown into a story of romance, adventure, sport. Uh, um, it's a musical. It's it's very funny in an extremely broad way. Um, there are cringe-worthy moments with some of the terrible, terrible acting. Um, there are sweeping, gorgeous moments of of pure romance um, and a joy and happiness. Um, the the story is generally uh, an underdog sports story where a ragtag team of of people from the local village have to put together a cricket team to beat the British officers. And if they manage to beat them, then they won't have to pay their tax for three years. And they cannot pay their tax because there's been a drought. Um, So everything is riding on them winning this this cricket match. And you know they're going to win from the very first second of the film but it doesn't matter it's still tense and it's still brilliant and i love 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 it and i will continue to talk about it in every single podcast that you allow me on so um, this is your dark the end night. of time this is my dark night this is your it's dark not, night it's not my favorite film of all time <laughs> but it is a, a recent film that has brought me more joy than any other film that i've seen maybe in the last 10 years it's so good I feel like, unless I'm wrong, was it your number one world cinema? It was, yeah. Right, because I was almost going to say that it's it's almost like your bridesmaid and that it's always in there somewhere, but it's never <laughs> quite number one. Yeah, uh, no, it was for, yeah, it was for right. the Foreign Film Podcast. Yeah. Never mind then. <laughs> okay, right, I'm going to do my number three because, again, we're still waiting on the swan. How far is this shot from his house? He doesn't want to be on this podcast. That's what I've concluded. Set us up for a fail, knowing that I'm going to schedule it in. It's going to fill two weeks of time. Mm -hmm. And then he's just gone, nah, sod it. I'm not doing it. That's exactly what's happened. That's what's happened here. He's going to bob up at the end. Right. My number three, another one of Sam's honorable mentions. And I was really, really surprised that this was in his honorable mentions. Actually, No Country for Men was in his actual list. Whereas this one, when we did the David Fincher podcast, he gushed over this film, and I'm surprised that it was only in his honorable mentions. This is Zodiac. So this is set in 1969, 1971, and 1978. And it's a mystery thriller, one of my favourite genres, if that's not become clear so far, if not my favourite genre. Directed by David Fincher from the screenplay by James Vanderbilt, based on the 1986 non-fiction book by Robert Graysmith. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal, who I have kind of the biggest man crush on. Um, Mark Ruffalo, again. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, Brian Cox, Eli Cotius, Donald Rogue, John Carroll Lynch, and Robert uh, Dermot Mulroney in supporting roles. 
The film tells the story of the manhunt for the Zodiac Killer, so a serial murderer who has been terrorising the San Francisco Bay Area during the late 1960s and the early 1970s, taunting police with letters, bloodstained clothing and ciphers mailed to newspapers. The case remains one of the United States' most infamous unsolved crimes, and in the late 1960s and early 70s, fear grips the city of San Francisco as a serial killer stalks its residents. The investigators, played by Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, and reporters, played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr., become obsessed with learning the killer's identity and bringing him to justice. Meanwhile, the killer is continuing on his killing spree. The idea of a serial killer in a big city immediately harkens back to your old school noir. And I think that kind of sensibility immediately gripped me. You've got David Fincher's own artistic style of he's going to put in, you know, that it's very dark. There's a lot of real dark elements to it. When we're talking about the psychological, the, the kind of psychological nature even of his protagonists, the scene where, and it's quite towards the end where, Jake Gyllenhaal goes to visit Robert Downey Jr.'s character on his boat because for whatever reason he's now living on a boat and he just looks like a shell of his former self because he's just given absolute years and time and painstaking hard work to try and find this guy and they can't find him. And for what and we're just we're going back and forth. And you know, I think this is this is Gyllenhaal when he still looked quite young. Because I remember thinking at the time, you know, you, you, we saw him in Donnie Darko. Um, he'd done a couple of bits, you know, around about that time. He did Brokeback Mountain and then he went and did Zodiac. And I think this was the kind of clear point where, oh, this guy's going to be a, an almost tour de force performer when he really puts his mind to it and when he's in these kind of big social thriller films. Um the opening sequence when you first see the Zodiac killer and he's, he's going up to the car and things like that. And then even the one that's in broad daylight with a couple that are next to the, the beach or the, the riverbank or whatever it is. It's just, it's one of those films that just for whatever reason unnerves me. I don't watch all too often. I'll throw it on every now and again, if it's on sky and things like that, as we're kind of like looking for things to watch. Um, but it's just, yeah, I really, I really like it. It's up there with one of Finch's best I would say, um, I think I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is his best. I love Panic Room. Um, I love Zodiac. Yeah, mm, maybe. Um, I got a little bit distracted then because a certain Dr. Swan has entered the waiting room. Uh, <laughs> here he is. He's connecting to audio. He says he's banging on the door, is the text that he's just sent me. Hello, uh, Doctor. Hi, gang. Uh, so, Joel, I've just won, I've just done my number three. <laughs> All right, so I've missed the. I, I guess I also thought that um, uh, Big Man Manu Cherry would be on as well. So the, the well, he's. Um, I think he's taking the rest, to be honest, rather than doing a pod. Well, um, so I've read out your. Where are they? I've done your six, uh, your ten to six. Wait one second. Adam attempted to read. Oh yeah, because let's just sh- let's, shall we just glance over? So, War and Peace, I think we were fine with. That's, uh, an, honorable, honorable that's an honorable. That's an honorable mention. Yeah, Orlando, I'm aware of because it's got Tilda Swinton in it, and I watched it at university. Right, good, yeah. that's a good university. Uh, Oedipus Rex, not too familiar with that. Um, it's a Pasolini. I think it's Pasolini. Okay. Um, 
Salo uh, or Salo. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Holly Googled. Um, is that, is that, who's that? Is that Pasolini as well? Yeah, it we, is Pasolini. We just came to the assumption that that is a Joel film. Um, Barry Lyndon, Kubrick. Yeah. Um, the your Andre Rublev was crossed out, so I'm assuming he's going to pop up later on. Um, your witch or the witch, as Commodore Mayo referred to it. I have got that right. I've like that. Is, is that is the fairly recent one? The horror kind of 2015. Yeah, I thought that yeah. was. Really, yeah, yeah, that's the one with um, Finchie from The Office playing. So I, might, I don't know that reference is lost on you, no. young and um, playing uh, playing a pilgrim. Uh, seven was your was Win Stanley, and then six was the favorite, which is the correct title. Um, so I've just done my number three. Joel, do you want to do if you do your five, four, three, and then Holly can do her three, and then we'll go from there? All right, cool. So, number five is uh, the draftsman's contract. Um, 1982, Peter Greenaway, I hope. Yeah. Um, and I guess what maybe distinguishes my top five is um, a more conscious engagement with the, the art and culture of the period in which, which the films are set. I think that's, that's the kind of distinction I'd... I would make between the bottom five and the top five. So in, in general, my, my interest in historically set films is perhaps a bigger question of what the role of the past in the present is or um, how we, you know, how does, the, how does the past inform what we are and what we're going to be as a culture? Um, and I think that's a provocative question because there's so much historically set nonsense all the time, right? Um, and that's presented as we've been uh, talking about all of the nonsense in your uh, yeah yeah this is so absence. like <laughs> meaningful and deep whereas i think when you listen back to our picks for the other ones we're like we like anchorman because the suits from the 70s are fun <laughs> well that raises another question but let me carry on teachers back in the room um and okay, so when I talk, when I say historically set nonsense, I don't just mean sort of you know very recent historical periods, but um, let's say you know the absolute um, abundance of like Jane Austen um, films, series, whatever. I absolutely love Jane Austen. I, I really adore her books. Um, I think they're incredible works of art. But the I would say the choice of that period, and this I am coming around to Glassman contract. The choice of the period is not just a neutral choice. Oh, right, yeah, we like costumes, we like old things. Let's just choose any period. Oh, let's just say it's Jane Austen. That's that's not really what's happening because it's 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 a a choice of a period and a, a time when um, and a, and, a, and a type of novel where one could retract from from the politics of the world, where you could have a whole social drama that makes very very little reference to to anything of consequence. And I think, you know, Jane Austen herself is amazing at being the, the author of that period and the author of the, the emotions and the, um, 
the the whole policing of a tone of, of, of social discourse that, that happens there and that's very important but when you put that onto film it's just oh it's just lovely costumes isn't that nice which kind of winds me up so draftsman's contract very unusual periods to be set uh, to, to be used for, for, for setting of a film restoration who cares about the restoration i think he's froze is he froze oh there he oh is. you Okay, I, 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 you both froze, which included Holly freezing on like a, a what looked like a sneer. <laughs> oh, was it was it a rhetorical question of who cares about the restoration? Yeah, not entirely rhetorical. Um, it was for the restoration. I'm so, say no. And so, like, so that period is that's the period from like about six, well, 1660, when the House of Stuart was restored to the throne after the Civil War and, and interregnum. Um, and it usually taken to be until the end of the 17th century in 1700. Um, and this is when people started wearing wigs in serious um, fashion, really big wigs. Um, this is when maybe that, that maybe culture has a sort of artificiality to it that, that wasn't really quite so clear before, because now, uh, you know, the king, the, you know, God's representative of earth has been killed and brought back. Um, so we know that we know that royal power is is a uh, phony thing. We know it's all just a sham, but we're going to carry on as if it's all fine and it's all you know as it was before. Draftsman's contract. I don't know that. So those are my general thoughts. This is one of the very few films I've seen set in that period. Um, it's it's about a an architectural uh, draw drawer ar architectural artist who draws this man's, this wealthy man's house while that's the contract. That's part of the contract. Um, so it's like, draw my house and, okay, I'll do that, but I've got to have access to your your wife too. And he's like, well, fine, whatever. And that, I guess that, that, that for me, that kind of weird combination, well, is it that, yeah, that weird combination of um, things, of a, of a contract, of uh, architectural um, aesthetics being this important thing and um, quite, uh, I don't know what the word, a certain type of sexuality. Those all, those three, that's almost like a nice little triangle that I, I see as embodying a lot of the culture of the rep restoration. So I think it's amazing that Peter Greenway's put that all on film uh, in a product for us to enjoy. So go for it. Enjoy it if you like. Have a Christmas or don't. Either way, it's fine. So that was your number five. Yeah. That also may be the first time that I might have to use a beep on this podcast. <laughs> Look at him. Leaves, leaves school on Friday. Starts coming, you know, bad-mouthing all over this. No, I mean, you should, re you should listen to my, my podcast. Well, I don't want to say anything, but you know. I mean, but I can't... I can't like in that one, I've tried to keep the the luder stuff towards the end, which well. Oh, as a treat for those that listen all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'll try and I'll try and um, keep it keep it uh, grandma suitable. All um, right. So what am I doing? So I, I'm I'm I've done four and four. three. Four and three. Let's try and go a little bit quicker. So I think that's got a bit of theory out of the way. So four, uh, the mill and the cross, two thousand and eleven. And that's a film I only watched this uh, weekend. Um, and it is, it, it, I think it was really, really remarkable. 
So the mill and the cross, the title refers to um, two parts of a painting by the, the artist um, Peter Bruegel, Peter Bruegel the Elder. Um, and I'm actually, I'm sorry, if I'd been a bit better prepared today, I um, would have would have sent this to you already. But the said, turnips took responsibility, it's fine. It did, Priority, I, mean, I should say. I mean, I was just I was just really worried, so I'm glad I'm not sitting here sitting here worried. Um, it's it's a it's a painting called the procession to Calvary, um, and yeah, I'll, I'll even just I'll just drop the the Wikipedia link in. Um, and so this is what I meant by maybe um, engaging with the the art and culture of the past. That's what I find really really interesting in in a film set in the past. Um, again, if there's there's relatively little stuff set in the restoration it's probably a bit more set in like the 16th 17th centuries because of sort of the Shakespeare connection Elizabeth that kind of thing it is quite representable but the idea of like taking this painting this incredible painting and this is and you know it's, it's sort of um it's representative of, of Bruegel's painting in its uh, its color palette in its um astonishing detail in its uh, representation of um uh, forms of uh, life from rich and poor, including folk traditions and oppressive, um, you know, Spanish mercenaries. Um, very odd film, um, very rich soundscape. Um, reminded me of a film called Huckle. I wonder if you've seen that, anyone? Hungarian film, really nice. Um, so a lot is done with sound. So you sort of, you're really drawn to the, the, just the, the weird sounds of the mill of everyday life. And the and the visual character as well, um, and I just love the way it it, it it presented sort of the story of this painting being produced, hardly as a story, um, but through kind of introducing um, various different figures, how they could have related to um, real people in Bruegel's life, um, real things he's seen. Um, I, I don't know if the argument of the film really works or not, but I really, I really, really liked it. Also, Bruegel is played by Rutger Hoyer, who uh, is was in Blade Runner. Legend. Playing yeah. He was in Batman Begins. Was I he in Die Hard? Was he in Die Hard? Maybe not. Maybe another blonde man. No, the first no he's one. not in Die Hard. Um, oh, he's not here. We I, can't ask him. As a uh, Rugger Hauer is amazing. I think he's the only person I've ever seen like out charisma Harrison Ford, and that is a very, very tall order. And he did it with ease. If you want a really weird kind of B movie exploitation, Hobo with a Shotgun that came out a few years ago. That's got Rugger Hauer in it. It's basically him playing a hobo with a shotgun. Um, yeah, I I would watch the hell out of that. It's fun. But you, 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 you are. I'm sorry. That, thank you for giving us that in, Holly. Like I've, I'm just all over the place in my observations. Um, yeah, and I guess he he has to have a certain sort of quiet charisma in this film. There's very little dialogue. Um, does he have a lot of? You know, maybe he's not given a lot of space for that for, for a kind of a powerful character. But maybe just that that quietness is, is part of the, the importance. Charlotte Rampling plays his mum. Which is nice, you know, favourite, sort of tea time favourite. Plays his mum? Yeah. That surprises me. I, I wouldn't have said that there was that much of an age difference between those two. That's a good point. Um, she was born in 1946. He was born in um, 
1944. So, <laughs> so he's, I, he's older. <laughs> I think the film industry strikes again. Oh dear. <laughs> okay, well, I, I haven't, I, I haven't worked it out, but um, anyway, very, very, I'd, I'd really recommend that film. Um, I think even if, you know, you think, oh God, Joel's got on, he's going to give us all these ridiculous foreign films, subtitles, black and white. I think there's a lot to enjoy in The Cross and the Mill. And if you, if you want to have a bit of a think, you know, I think you'd, you'd, you'd enjoy that. Nobody thinks that, Joel. We're waiting for you to educate. We've spoken. I was about thinking that. Anchorman. Oh. Right, so am I still? Am I still going on? There's yeah, you got yeah. one more. Number three. Do you, do you three, and then Holly's going to do her three. Right. And okay. I'm going to seem like an unbelievable pleb. <laughs> after all this, after yeah. all this theoretical. <laughs> okay, so the, th- the number three on my list is. Um, the 1976 film by Derek Jarman called uh, Sebastian, Sebastiana. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. The film is in Latin, which is good. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't speak Latin, but the film is, and it's got subtitles that's handy. Um, and it's, it's been a little while since I've watched it, so I'm not going to be able to report really well on the, um, the story. But um, Derek Jarman's interesting here anyway, and uh, has his name come up on the podcast before I've turned up? It had, you, you've mentioned him before. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I can't remember which one it was for. You know what, it might it might have even been this one. Um, I think I've not done this one yet, Joel. I think it might have been, been Sebastian. I think it might I, oh. I think I might have mentioned that on the um, non-English podcast. Um, I've also mentioned, I did also mention, as you know, Orlando in the honorable mentions. I also had in mind his film, his kind of breakthrough film, Jubilee. Um, and all these films sort of end in this sort of 70s and 80s period where people are starting to say, oh, post, we, we can't be modern, modernism now. We can't do that. We've got to do postmodernism. What's that going to be? Um, and rather than just being a fairly worn out label that we detach to lots of things now, um, I think it's 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 postmodern in a in a fairly fairly strict sense. Sorry, those are, in fact those other films like Orlando and Jubilee, um, you know, their use of of pastiche, of um, the use of um, anachronism, um, you know, comedy placed with um, very serious films. All of these things mark it as the kind of postmodern gestures. Sebastian is less so, um, but. What makes it so interesting is this focus on these religious figures, on this saint, uh, well, a man who would become a saint, and his, his extremely erotic interest in, in Christ, um, and his sort of relationship with the, the Roman guards. He's, he's a Roman um, back in the old days. All these Romans, Roman men having sex with each other um, while, while they're, they're camped out in some remote corner of the empire. Um, Sebastian isn't so interested in having sex with them because he's sort of more interested in this absolute true love of Jesus, um, which they find a little bit suspicious. Um, so it's a film that takes sort of seriously the idea of, of a history of homosexuality that isn't just a history of oppression, um, which I, I think, you know, is, is, is potentially um, emancipatory in the present. Um, again, whether or not you, you you accept the the absolute argument of the film, I'm not really that interested. Um, I assume I assume those Roman soldiers are definitely were definitely having sex with each other, um, and 
for thousands of years, there's been, you know, the, the, the eroticism of Christianity is, is, is being testified to. So, so it, it's historically accurate in, in a symbolic sense. Fantastic. Have a, have, a, have a nice watch of it and you'll go far. Thanks. Holly, have you got anything light? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is, this is the reason why the person who suggests the podcast needs to explain the podcast but after we've done about three quarters because yeah because so far joel um adam and i have been just talking about films that we like which incidentally are set in the past for for no good reason um and have not talked at all about how that setting kind of plays into our enjoyment of the film or the message that we get from it um apart from oh and the costumes of fern um, so I'm, I'm very sorry when you listen back to this and see how we have butchered your, your fine idea to talk about historical films by just talking about a bunch of films which were set like five years before they were made. We're very sorry. Um, my, my number three is uh, Life of Brian. Yay! Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I don't think is a comment on the time at all. I think it is a very uh, important comment on how Hollywood depicts uh, religion um, and how uh, people fracture when they are in a group and become sects. So the fact that when uh, Brian is running away from his followers and they all start thinking that they need to either take their shoe off or put their shoe on or keep their shoes close or ignore shoes. Um, and that basically tells us uh, a very interesting message on how the Christian church has formed into separate segments. Um, I, I really love those little messages within the film. Um, I don't have a lot to say about its setting. It's obviously set in, in biblical times, um, but the film was made in 1979. The director was Terry Jones. Um, and yeah, for, for me, we, we spoke about this on the comedy podcast because it was very high up on my list of favourite comedy films ever. Um, and Adam had uh, Holy Grail on his list instead. Um, I think the thing that elevates um, Life of Brian for me above the rest of um, the Monty Python kind of uh, back catalogue is that, that seriousness that they um, and reverence that they treat the original material there is there is a, an actor who very seriously plays Christ at the beginning of the film and they, they're not pulling apart everything they're pulling apart human frailty and silliness and looking at that they're not destroying religion and everything in their path and making fun of it while they do it I think it's incredibly clever film picking at very um, relatable things from human nature um, that that we all do. Um, so, I mean, I, I think things I feel, Holly, that like links actually very nicely to the uh, the cross and the mill, um, because part of the point of that painting, so the painting by Bruegel, is to have the, the crucifixion in the very centre, but then like loads of stuff going on around it, so that people who are obviously not looking at the crucifixion which mm -hmm. is you know, by you know some stand by some uh, estimations the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world and people are just up to whatever um 
you know, like the sermon. I mean, I, I, I don't know about for Brian Inside Out, but like when the Sermon on the Mount is happening and people are saying, what did he say? Blessed are the yeah. cheesemakers. cheesemakers. Um, My favourite line in the whole film is during the crucifixion where someone at the back just goes, and Swedish separate from Welsh. <laughs> like they, they, they have a really big problem with being crucified in the same area as Welsh people. Um, and just that, that those silly things are going on while people are dying. Um, I enjoy for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think that's a really good choice, and um, uh, yeah, really good. Yeah, what an opportune time to mention that the podcast is still sponsored by Offworld Tees, who do a Judean people's front um, design. You can of get fifteen percent off. Yeah, of course they do. I would, yeah, I would off be your order. I wouldn't be caught dead in a T-shirt saying Judean people's front. I'm people's front of Judea. I think they might do both. Okay, that's good. That's good. 15% off your order if you use the code Farrand. Get on it. Buy well, two. What a coincidence. What a coincidence that. What I'm a coincidence. That, but then actually, there's a, a shop that hap- just happens to sponsor that. Honestly, it's so like, it's as if I planned it, but I didn't. Kismet. See? <laughs> right. I'm going to do my number two so Joe can kind of take a breather from all the talking that he's just done. Um, so my number two has already come up on Holly's list. By the way, Joel, Holly's already called me out for spoiling things um, because even though I say at the beginning of podcasts, don't spoil your own list, I always go, oh, is that going to come up later? Um, because Every it's coming time. up. Every <laughs> time. You've been trying to spoil mine and actually you don't you don't know what's on my list. Um, so I'm assuming Andre Rublev still is going to be. No, it's not. I, okay, well, I'll, I'll spoil that much. It's not on the list. <gasps> I had to go to so many great historically set films. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Well, my number one is... Uh, no, sorry, my number two, don't jump ahead of yourself, is the one that uh, I did mention previously of it's going to come up later and it's Spotlight. Um, so set between 2001 and 2002, released in 2015, and it follows the Boston Globe Spotlight team, the oldest continuously operating newspaper investigative journalist unit in the United States, and its investigation into cases of widespread and systemic child sex abuse in Boston by num- numerous Roman Catholic priests. Um, it's got the fantastic ensemble cast of Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, um, Rachel McAdams, John Slattery, Stanley Tucci, Brian Darcy, James, Leave Scriber in the most restrained Leave Scriber scene uh, performance I've ever seen in my life, and he's so calm every single time he comes on screen. Uh, Billy Kudrup's in there as well, and I, the thing, I, I mean, we mentioned it before when me and Holly were talking about it that I've watched this with. I watched it with year 10s last year, current year 11s, because they do in media news and newspapers. And we were getting to that point, I think it was either just before Christmas or just before Easter, where they'd done so much work, I thought, I need to kind of reward them with something. Let's watch Spotlight. And I think at the time I kind of went, is this going to be too heavy for them? They loved it. They absolutely loved it. They were riveted because it's so superbly written. And the, the ensemble's fantastic. Everything feels important in it. Everything feels like it has a place. And I went back to it a couple of years ago because I'd watched it in the cinema and then I'd left it, I think, maybe a year. Um, and I decided after we watched it to tweet about it and I put, um, it's such a uniquely cinematic story that's fantastically told by the characters that the payoff when the team are finally publishing their story and their findings is so rewarding because we know 
how much they've had to go through and deal with and try and get to that point where they can finally publish the story. Um, every time we talk about film language in film studies, I always say, and people can kind of, you know, um, call me whatever they want to call me when I say this, editing is the most boring thing to talk about because sound does so much for a film, non-diegetic, diegetic sound. Cinematography is the key to emotion. Mise-en-scene tells you anything about the characters that you need to know without exposition. Editing typically is one shot to the next, one shot to the next. In a film where you can make a spreadsheet look thrilling, you've got editing on point. Thank you very much. Right, And just the simple fact that they're going through these books and they're finding the names of all these priests who all have the same code because they've been sent off on leave when actually they've been found out to be sexually abusing children and then they're cross-referencing it with a spreadsheet and you have a montage sequence where literally they're just going down names and they've got a highlighter going through a book. One of the most thrilling sequences in a film in a very long time. Um, and then the scene, again, if we're talking non-diegetic music or non-diegetic soundtrack, the scene where Brian Darcy James's character is sat at his kitchen table and is going through this list of these priests and where they live, and he realises that one of them lives round the corner from him, and he leaves his house, and he's got a sort of slowly running slash walking, the music's building up, he goes home and he writes on the fridge, do not go anywhere near this house so he can warn off his children, because again, they're at a point where they can't come out and say you have done this because it's slander. Like you, you can't come out and admit it. You can't come out and accuse people of doing it because they don't have the right evidence at that point. And it's just the building and the payoff. It's a film that I would refer to as being a talky film in that there's no kind of action set pieces or anything like that. There's no big, ex, you know, not that you need an explosion, but there's nothing like that. But it's a film that is all dialogue pretty much all the way through and it's unbelievable how it can hold your attention for that long um and i think it's i think it's great it's my number two um because something even more prevalent to me is my number one um but yes that is my number two joel i, do, I, do, to, I just wanted to follow up adam i don't want you to feel like you're just shouting into the abyss i'm uh, shouting into the abyss but i i um i watched spotlight maybe a few months ago. And I mean, I, I really appreciated your write-up there because I did, I did enjoy it. Maybe I didn't necessarily, um, it didn't really stick in my mind. And even even sort of looking at it now, looking at the uh, the Wikipedia, listening to your words, I don't necessarily remember it very well. But um, yeah, I think it's something I definitely go back to with 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 new eyes. Mm. Uh, and it's in, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'd like a comment from you and maybe it's something you've already talked on, talked on is like, so this is this is from the set in the seventies, right? Uh, two thousand and one. No, two thousand one. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. Well, anyway, because I, I think it starts off in the seventies. Yes. With a very early case, and then they're historically going back to things that happened in the seventies. So that's but not necessarily through flashback or anything like that. They're just referring to it. A few layers. Okay, great, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Joel, go on then. Do your number two. Do my number two. Let's have a look. Um, okay, number two, the souvenir, um, which is a film, uh, very recent, two thousand and nineteen. Quite a low rating on IMDb, I notice. Totally unreasonably. Um, so it's directed by uh, Joanna Hogg, who who's done um, lots of really interesting. 
um, films about posh people in Britain, um, which is a funny thing. I mean, I, I remember seeing her film uh, Unrelated, maybe 2008, something like that. Um, first film of hers I've seen. And my sense, the sense I got from reviews was whereas in France, it's quite common to to write, to make films about the bourgeoisie. In, in Britain, it's kind of a bit distasteful and it doesn't really happen so much. Um, but Joanna Hogg is, is, is the great contemporary director of, of bourgeois Britain. Um, what can I say about the souvenir? Uh, again, okay, so again, it matches this, um, this tendency of my top five to as a film that that engages significantly with the past, um, and the, the 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 souvenir of the title is uh, this painting by the 18th century artist Fragonard, um, Jeanot Fragonard, um, and this painting hangs in. It's very small in the Wallace Collection in London, which is a, a nice afternoon if you've ever got a bit of time in London. Um, and in fact, the, the, the film isn't set in the 18th century, it's set in the 80s. Um, and kind of, I don't know, I, the 80s, you kind of know what to expect in some ways, you know, you're expecting like big suits and people being rich and doing stocks and stuff. And it's, it's not like that, because you've got Tilda Swinton's daughter is the main character. Um, who's at film school and struggling to to kind of do film. Um, she's also got a, a boyfriend who's a bit older and a heroin addict um, and uh, has, I think, a degree in degree from the Courtauld Institute, um, but doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, and I think the the the, the place of the, the painting is is, is in their visits to to the Wallace collection and talking about that that painting with him kind of being a bit pompous about it. Eventually, her boyfriend uh, actually dies in the Wallace collection as well. That's why it's such an important setting. He has an overdose in toilets and, and dies there. Um, I don't know, very difficult. I found it quite a difficult film, not easy to enjoy, but um, very, just a, a very evocative, very, very provocative. Um, wonderful stuff. Go and watch it. You have such fine art collection. I've just got Christopher Nolan's face behind me. Well, I, I've got, I've got, I've got a nice collection at the moment. I don't know if you're going to be able to see, but, um, oh, you know, I... we've got the... Oh, is that the Tiger Tiger? Yeah, we, so we've got the, the souvenir. We've got Tiger Tiger at the moment. Maybe that'll go somewhere else. And then we've got a, a Jesus from Florence. Um, so there's a nice little array at the moment. Uh, Holly, have you done your number two? Right, okay. So uh, number two then. My number two is a film that I, I was struggling whether to put it in my comedy um, list. And in the end, I didn't, but I'm kind of regret it now. I think it should have been there. Is um, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, so this is an Ealing comedy. It came out in 1949, but it's set during the Edwardian period. So sometime between 1901 and 1910. Um, it follows uh, a young man called uh, Louis Dascoigne Mazzini. Uh, Dascoigne is the name of his extremely wealthy family, the family of his mother. But his mother um, went against the wishes of her family and married a poor uh, Italian um, opera singer and she was denounced by her family and cut off um, and 
through his upbringing, um, the mother, the mother's bile and bitterness at being cut off from her family is is poured into him um, until when she eventually dies, he makes it his um, life's mission to um, be reinstated into the Dascoyne family. Um, and when he does, he starts to get greedy and decides that actually he doesn't just want to be part of the family. He wants to be the head of the family and he wants to become the Duke of Chalfont, which is the title that this family hold. Um, so he goes about um, killing off each member of the family who um, stands between him and this title. Um, it's a dark, dark comedy and I, I love it. It's brilliant. Um, Alec Guinness, um, I, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so obviously Alec Guinness as um, Obi-Wan will always be my favourite Alec Guinness role, but Alec Guinness in this play, um, in this um, film plays nine separate parts. He plays every member of the Dascoyne family who gets murdered, um, including the women um, in drag. Um, and that kind of conceit really brings some of the um, surreal feeling to the film and, and some of the comedy. Um, but he's so haughty and, and awful as every member of the Dascoyne family um, that you, you start rooting for this mass murderer. Um, I really, really wanted him to win. And that the framing of the uh, film is that uh, Louis has become the Duke and is in a prison cell recounting, recounting his story and writing it down. Um, and uh, it's not a spoiler for a film that came out in 1949. Um, but he, as he's writing his story, we, we see what he did in flashback. So we see how he managed to actually get to the dukedom and then get caught. Um, but we also see that there are people behind the scenes, his wife and his mistress, who are working to try and get him out of prison um, and he eventually does, but with a bit of a twisty twist. Um, it's, it's a fantastic comedy and it is pitch black and it's not what you would expect from something so early in, in the Ealing um, canon. It, it, they're more kind of screwball. It's like Lady Killers is dark because it's about a murder plot. Um, but th this is a bit darker and, and uh, the depths of, of what humans are capable of um, when you dehumanize your um, enemy are, are fully explored. It's really, really good. Sounds very fantastic. nice. Go on, Joel. I was just going to say it sounds fantastic. And like, that's uh, unlike anything I've ever heard of. Um, I, I have the DVD. You can borrow it. Fantastic. Joe, are you good to do your number one? I am conscious that you look like you're rebuilding your electrics. No, it's all right. I'm just, I'm sort of just trying to you know, get those little jobs done. Like, can I, can I put this little? What like, is that? It's just, it's just a, uh, a light fitting on a, on a plug socket. <laughs> that, um, there's like quite a lot. There's actually quite a lot of wire. Things that people are doing at the same time as recording a yeah. podcast. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. It's it's, it's not. Um, I, I don't intend to take away from any of. Did you? Um, <laughs> that wasn't. That off. wasn't my uh, my intention. Oh yeah. You feel bad. Uh, it's just funny. I'm I'm reading a book. Oh. <laughs> Full attention. I mean, I am. Tra I'm tracking a delivery as well. So there you is, go. <laughs> um, Joel, out of interest, did you buy any turnips? I actually really don't like turnips. 
Um, so the turn, it was like a. So it was a joke. It was, though, it was, I guess, but the thing is, it's like you get, to, I feel like when we actually do, do, when we actually do the Brexit, like do the Brexit. If we if we if you go to the shop a bit late, and you'd be like, oh, well, can I just get like a couple of oranges and a courgette? They'll be like, oh, sorry, no, we've only we can only get things from Lancashire at the moment. Here's this, you can have this turnip. Um, so I feel like that's maybe that's that's what I'm worried about is is arriving too late to get a, a, a you know a French courgette, and all I'm allowed to have is a, a Lancashire Lancashire turnip. Actually, you know, I've got a wide range of, of fruit and veg um you know for the holiday season so hopefully it'll keep me through along with Huel uh up until at least the 31st of December if not Ad- admittedly we were um dissecting your shopping basket all oh, right I did offer that as a as a yeah. entertainment um, what did you see I- is anything you fancy not really it was a very Joel basket <laughs> because <laughs> um, by the time this podcast goes out we may have already done the Brexit so we may be in the midst of Turnipageddon so you might be hailed as a prophet yeah be like this could be like the happy the happy last stand I remember when it was like funny talking about the shopping um, no it's not remember when you get your sauerkraut remember when you get that lovely sauerkraut not anymore you're the angel of death Joel mm. Anyway, Joe, what's your number one? All right. A lovely European film. No, it's not. It's um, Mary Antoinette um, by uh, Sofia Coppola. And um, it's really, really good. Um, I guess the, 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 back, the background here, so that's from 2006, is um, for when, in my last year teaching in Hong Kong, I, I, I delivered a course on... 18th century literature which is quite a hard it's quite a hard period to get into um, if you don't have a sort of reference point from what the 18th century is um, and I might have mentioned this at the very start but I mentioned now and I realized sort of part of what helps you as a British person get to grips with like a historical period is all sorts of nonsense you might have seen over the years you know whether that's Blackadder whether that's Jane Austen, whether that's something else, all of that works together to create that sort of visual landscape of what it means to be the 18th century in distinction to the 19th century or in distinction to the 17th century. Um, so I, I wanted to do something to engage students um, from a completely non-European background. Um, I want to do something to help them kind of get that, um, just that imaginative landscape. But also at that time, um, we were teaching 14, these 14 week semesters without any reading week in, um, which were very, very long. And people just weren't coming to classes in the middle of the term because it was so, it was such a hard you know, slog. So I decided, right, 18th century course, we're gonna have two weeks in the middle where we're not reading Robinson Crusoe or we're not reading John Gay's Beggar's Opera. Um, we're not gonna read, um, poetry whatever else we're just going to watch a couple of films and if you want at the end of the course you'll be able to write your essay about um, one of those films you know that's going to be an an option that you can take Um, so I set the film Belle which is good Um, but I also set the film Marie Antoinette which I think is 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 um, you know lasting lasting monument Um, and what I like with Marie Antoinette um 
I think it's, 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 it's just completely fine. It's just completely happy about doing things anachronistically, which I love. Um, it's got a banging punk soundtrack, which just totally works, um, but obviously doesn't, you know, doesn't try to evoke like, you know, the, 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 the music of the period, but just, um, you know, has Susie and the Banshees or whatever playing in the background and it, it's just totally fine. Um, I think it's sort of relentless focus on the figure of um, Marie, who's obviously not a sympathetic historical figure, but giving her the absolute benefit of the doubt, that makes for an interesting story. I think it's willingness to be completely fascinated with this world of French opulence. And of course, it was a great age for opulence. And maybe 2006 was a great age for opulence as well before the 2008 crash. Um, so on a lot of bases, it's just a fascinating film and um, really, really good. And I think maybe that's one of the, 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 the films that just made me start to think a bit more seriously about like what the role of... Um, you know, history is in creating films of the, the present. So that's my top pick, Marie Antoinette, not Andre Rublev, which is oh. also not that I've seen either, but it's fine. Um, Holly, go on then, you're number one. Okay, so I am fairly sure that my number one is also your number one, Adam. Oh, and if it is, then. I think that we should talk about it together. Okay, I'm intrigued. If it isn't, then okay. I'm super smug because I believe it should be on your list. Oh, And no. you've just forgotten it. Don't do this to me. Uh, so my top pick is uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nope. Oh. Not a fan, Not a fan of Indiana Jones. <laughs> what? <laughs> so. Uh, uh, no, before, no. Before what? You, yeah, before you gush about it. Um. I, I'd never seen any Indiana Jones. And again, I think this is to do with the timing and if I'd watched them as a kid and all that kind of stuff until last year, maybe the year before, when I had the first round of film studies GCSE students on the new spec and we have to do comparative analysis between two films. They were supposed to be doing Rebel Without a Cause and Ferris Bueller's Day Off because they'd had so many different supply teachers. All they did was watch Rebel and Ferris on repeat and not actually do any content. So they were sick to death of it. So I asked them if there was any preference as to what else they would do. And we ended up doing King Solomon's Mines from 1955 and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was the first time that I'd seen Raiders and then taught it and watched it a couple more times then. And I think it's fine. I think it's a perfectly like decent film, but I have no affinity for Indiana Jones whatsoever. That's so interesting because to, to me, he is the one of one of the most iconic film characters of all time. Um, and Raiders of the Lost Ark is the map by which all adventure action films should follow if they want to be a successful action adventure film. Um, yeah, you said when we talked about our um, 1990 to 1995 lists, Adam, that um, Jurassic Park, and I'm sure you talked about this on your Jurassic Park podcast as well, is the film you would show to an alien if they came down to Earth and wanted to know what this cinema thing was. Because mm -hmm. that to you is the film that encapsulates what a film can be. Mine is Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of nonplussed because I expected I wouldn't have to talk about Raves of the Lost Ark. I expected I would say it and then you would gush about it. So I'm, I'm underprepared. Yeah. Um, uh, um, the uh, charismatic lead, the uh, globe-hopping adventure, the sparky, feisty uh, sidekick slash heroine, the um, creepy and, and unsettling villain who still has comedy beats. Um, which, which lighten the mood. Um, violence, which is child-friendly. Um, all of these things are things that later action-adventure films have tried to copy, um, and no one has done it better than, than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I would watch it every time it is on television. I will sit and watch it, and I will love it, and I will be transported to when I was about eight, when I saw it for the first time, um, I, I know it back to front. Um, every single set piece and moment is fantastic. And I think it's probably the first time I ever heard of the Nazis. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, Nazis are people who tried to open the Ark of the Covenant and got melted. Um, is their main, my main problem with the Nazis and then, you know, the other stuff. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> um, I mean, but I can no, talk- that's it. That's fascinating because obviously you you are a fan of Spielberg in some sense because of Jurassic yeah. Park and your love for it. Um, t- to me, this this is far better than the wonderful Jurassic Park. Um, so yeah, very interesting. I can talk to you about context and things like you know George Lucas wanted to make a James Bond, so he decided to go this route and supposedly you know position Harrison Ford as if he were James Bond. Um, the very gratuitous, and I think I only see it as gratuitous now, um, shot at the beginning of the film where you see him totally in shadow, and this being the first time that we've seen Indiana Jones, but because it's Harrison Ford, he's going to step out of the shadow and everyone's going to go, oh, look, it's Han Solo. Uh- <laughs> I, I, I heard once from uh, an illustrator that the sign that you have an iconic character is that you can recognise them from a silhouette. And I think the, the yeah. Indiana Jones silhouette, that he, he's such an iconic character that that's one. Like, you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick Han Solo out from a silhouette, but you definitely could. So, I mean, um, so I've only seen Raiders. Is Temple of Doom and Last Crusade worth? Uh, if you like the first one, because the first one is the best by I a long, long way. fine, you know. Um, I, 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 I know. You've never I, been so wrong, Adam. <laughs> never ever been so wrong. I, I want to avoid Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because I've heard that that's awful. Absolutely, um, oh, oh, stay far, far away from it. And there's and got to be not, another one. Ugh. Yeah, I don't understand how he's doing another one. Yeah, no, no, thank you. I thought we were past that. All right, All right. My number one is not Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, Um, it's a film that means an awful lot to me, and I've actually only seen it twice. The first time was in the cinema, and it was actually the last film that I ever saw at the Corner House. Um, And it was my most respectful, pleasant film viewing that I've ever had in my life, because everybody was just 
observant and in love with it at the same time as I was. The second time I watched it was when I made Amy watch it because as is with anything, if I go to the cinema and watch something on my own and I love it, I then say to Amy, we need to watch this and then she'll watch it. And Amy's response afterwards was, I can understand why you like it so much. She didn't have the same kind of thing to me. Um, From 2014, directed by Richard Linklater, this is Boyhood. Um, And the reason why is because it's my life on film. Um, It is set between 2002 and 2013, and it features primarily Mason, who is played by Ella Coltrane in his first film role. And you may know it more from the gimmick of that they shot it over 12 years as well. They shot specific scenes over 12 years. So we see Mason growing up. We see um, his parents played by Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke growing up at the same time. His sister played by Laurel I. Linklater growing up as well at the same time. And it's all these beats and what it's, it's so perfectly done for nostalgia, especially where, you know, you're showing Mason in 2003 and he's at the recent Harry Potter book launch and he's dressed as Harry Potter and he's going picking up his copy. It's around about the time where, you know, the Xbox has just been released and the PlayStation 2 is on the way out and things like that. And every little beat in my head, I'm subconsciously going, that was me when I was 14. That was me when I was 12. That was me when I was 18. That was me when I was 16. Um, And then kind of on a deeper level, the things of he ends, he's from a split family. His parents aren't together as he's growing up. You know, he's got apologies, dad. He's got the dad who comes and picks him up on a Saturday and is sometimes a little bit late. And the like him and his sister have to sit through mum going, he's always late. Why is he never on time? Why is he doing this? And then, you know, he'll take you out and you'll go bowling. You'll go to the cinema. You'll do all that kind of stuff. He wants to know more about you, but you're in this kind of weird thing. If I don't really want to talk dad, cause you know, we just want to go and do the fun things. And then it's all about him finding his way as a teenager, then finding his way as a, as a, as an adult. And like some of the stuff that I kind of said about it on time was, it was the first time in a very long time that a film, a film has instantly struck a chord with me on so many different levels. As a son, first and foremost, as being, I could relate to Patricia Arquette's character as my mum. I could relate to Ethan Hawke as my dad. And it was every little nuance of their performance that immediately kind of said, this is essentially how my life has been up to now. Um, as a brother... There's so many different things where like me and my sisters would have play fights with each other or my sister would do something to like, she'll hit me. I then hit her back and then she screams. So then my mum comes in and blames me, you know, things like that. Little, little trinkets that they throw in there. Um, As a stepson, even that really confusing time where your mum's in a new relationship with somebody, you don't know how to take it. You don't know how to treat this person who is in some ways asking you to be called dad and things like that. And you don't have that affinity for them, but you're trying to respect your mum because she's chosen this person to have that relationship with at this point in her life. And in one sense, she's maybe thinking about them more than she's thinking about the kids, but then she's still trying to think about the kids. It's very uh, sort of um, multifaceted, I would say. Um, As a student, again, as somebody like, you know, are they good at everything? Are they not good at everything? What are the things that they really like to do? They're still trying to find themselves. Um, Even there's there's very short scenes as an employee were specifically from my time working in retail at a young age, 
where you'd get spoken down to by a manager and they'd treat you like absolute dirt on the bottom of the shoe. And even the truth in the conversations that are going on, everything in this film was just like somebody has just recorded me going through my life at all these points, all these beats of like superbly done where they're making sure that they throw the technology in there. They throw the references in there. There's a really nice scene where he goes on a camping trip. Mason goes on a camping trip with his dad um, and it's 2008. And they're talking about, oh, you know, the Dark Knight came out this year and it's a shame that Heath Ledger died. They're talking about Iron Man coming out, Tropic Thunder, they both liked and things like that. And it's, it's all these kind of nostalgic beats where you go, I recognize myself at that point in time. Um, and then it ends as he goes to university. And in the same way, where when, when it was released, I was 24. I'd, just, I'd come out of university like two years prior. I was doing my teacher training, things like that. And Mason's mum takes him into basically what would be our version of student halls and kind of sets his room up and then gets really upset that she now has to leave her son for the first time out of the and that was that was university halls that was what happened when i got dropped off at Bangor university and i had to kind of find my way and do all that kind of stuff so it was in terms of when we when we thought about this and when we thought about a film that kind of means something to you that is set in a in a past time it's that because it's that relatable to me and again i've only seen it all the way through twice um i've seen bits of it here and there and i use bits of it in my teaching um, it's a film that I think admittedly we bought a copy for for school because it's one of those films that every now and again I just think I'd love to show that to a class but it is almost three hours long if not three hours long and I don't think I'm ever going to get the time to do that um, and admittedly as well final point it is one film that you've got to give the credit to the patience and the passion of the cast and the crew apparently there was even a plan B where if for whatever reason Richard Linklater had died Ethan Hawke was going to take over directing it because they had to make sure that it got done and it got finished because they would, they, it's just every single year, there was no contract or anything like that. It was all a risk of every single year for 12 years, we're going to film something. And it absolutely deserved the plaudits that it got, should have won best picture at the Oscars. But that's another story because um, Birdman was rubbish. But yeah, that's it from me then. That's my number one. I forgive you for Raiders because that's you. a great first choice. <laughs> um, Joel, have you seen it? No, I guess um, I think you know I should. And um, Link later is like the before sunset, right? Before mm -hmm. yes, um, which I did find a bit gimmicky. Like I didn't, I couldn't really enjoy. Um, so I didn't. I guess I haven't. I didn't feel propelled to watch that when it was on at the pictures. However, having the Farron on film seal of approval. Um, I'll it's, go for it. It's a film very similar to Spotlight that I've been waiting a while to talk about. Yeah. Um, and there's been no kind of top 10 that it fit into. Yeah. It's definitely not a comedy, um, you know, and things like that. And yeah, it was just, this was the, the most opportune moment. So I suppose I'd thank you for that, Joel. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks once again to Holly, Joel and Sam for his sent in top 10 and for Holly and Joel's time and enthusiasm today. You can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other, and I'll see you next time.